0: And let us turn to our copies of God's infallible Word to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. We'll be in verses 1 through 9 this morning as we cover an incredibly important doctrine, an often overlooked doctrine in the modern American church. That is the doctrine of repentance. What does it look like? Why should we do it? Why is this such an important question for us to have the answer to? So let's read together in Luke chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Listen carefully, for this is the word of Christ. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and, Put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let us ask his blessing on our text this morning. O God in heaven, we do thank you for this text that you've given to us, this hard and challenging text. But I pray that you would illuminate it for us. We can't do this on our own. The natural man does not comprehend the things of God's. So we need your help this morning. Lord, help me preach effectively, accurately. Help us all to be edified by this passage that we have in front of us. It's in Jesus' name that I ask these things. Amen. This passage, especially this first paragraph that we have before us, verses 1 through 5, gets incredibly close to a question that we in our modern society have thought and asked a lot. And that question is, why do bad things happen? This has been a question that people have wrestled with for centuries. In fact, it comes up in any philosophy course worth its salt in any college that you can find to wrestle with this question with this problem. It's called the problem of evil. The problem has a very simple setup. If we say that God exists, by definition, God has to be all-powerful. If we're going to look into the scriptures and claim that God is all-good, then we have to ask the question that why do bad things happen? One of, there's a few different possibilities. We either find that perhaps maybe God is not all-powerful and cannot stop these bad things from happening. Or perhaps he's not all-good. He could stop it if he wanted to, but he doesn't. So he lets bad things happen to us for pure malice. Or maybe, as many people have come to this question, that perhaps God doesn't exist at all. I remember coming across a YouTube clip of a um, famous astrophysicist. His name is Neil deGrasse Tyson. Known well in the popular world for his ways of bringing cosmology down to people who are in a hurry. And this was his exact issue as to why he doesn't believe in God. He made reference to a terrible earthquake that occurred in the early 16 or 1700s in the country, coastal country of Lisbon. This earthquake occurred on All Saints' Day when a good portion of the population was worshiping in their grand cathedrals that morning. Cathedrals being tall and top-weighted were the first to go in this earthquake and crushed many of the worshipers, even as they were offering their praise to God. The earthquake then triggered a tsunami, which wiped out the rest of what was left of that country. And to this day, when people travel to Lisbon, they remark at how modern of a European city it is. It is still relatively young, because it had to be rebuilt. Now, it would seem that Jesus gets incredibly close to this exact question, doesn't it? Here in these verses, people are asking, why were these people murdered while they were worshiping? Why did this tower fall down on these people? And we get so close to hearing the answer. But Jesus moves in a different direction. And instead, he talks about repentance. So we're going to look and explore all of these questions. We'll take a look at the problem of evil. But first, we're going to focus where our focus should be. Where Jesus focuses is, and that is repentance. As always, we have our two points to look at this morning that you can find in your outline inserted in the bulletin. The first is that Jesus is the answer to our deepest question. Jesus is the answer to our deepest question, and second, that Jesus gives us what we need to grow. Jesus gives us what we need to grow. So let's take a look at our first point together, that Jesus is the answer to our deepest question. Now, last week we were looking at how Jesus remarks that we need to repent because time is short. And he has been getting after the people because they're able to read the signs of the weather. They can't read the signs of the times. That judgment is coming and that we will all be held to account. And the people here in verse 1 of chapter 13, they bring up this story about how Pilate killed These Galileans as they were on their way to worship, mingling their blood with the sacrifices. This would have been a truly horrifying act for anyone to have endured. To put it in modern terms, it would be like having terrorists, as one commentator put it, having terrorists enter into a church building while the worshipers were taking communion and mixing the the worshippers' blood with the communion wine. It's not only a tragedy, it's a sacrilege. And here these people are bringing this up. Maybe they think that Jesus will have something to say about that. Some political statement to make about the rulership of Pilate. Or maybe just take a general interest because Jesus himself is a Galilean. These would have been people that he might have even known. We don't hear of this attack in other sources outside of Scripture, but Pilate was a pretty brutal person towards the Jewish people and the sorts of accounts that that we could read of him slaughtering up to a thousand Jewish people at one particular protest in history, that this act doesn't seem outside of Pilate's character. So now why do these people bring this up? Why do they decide that this is the moment that they want to talk to Jesus about this particular moment? And I think Jesus provides us this answer as to why they bring it up. Sometimes people are not very good at figuring out why people have asked a question. And they'll try to pinpoint what it is that was really behind the subtext of your question. Sometimes people can do that. Well, most of the time they can't. Jesus, of course, is is an infallible guide. He knows exactly what's behind their question. And so he gives that to us here in verse 2. And he answered them. He says, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. And then Jesus brings up another illustration of those of a construction tower that had fallen down and had killed 18 people in Siloam. One commentator had a brilliant insight is that here we are covering both of these sorts of acts that we can find of evil. One of someone who has perpetuated evil, a corrupt government official who has gone in and Murdered these people, but yet also a natural disaster as well. A tower that has collapsed. It's no one's fault, particularly, but it seems to be something that God was working with. Now, these people bring up a really popular idea of why bad things happened to people. This idea that these Galileans or those people working on that tower that day were somehow worse than everybody else. And that's why they suffered in this way. This was a great solution to the problem of evil. Why do bad things happen to good people? Simple. There are no good people. It's just more worse people. And that's why this happened. This was very popular. In fact, we can actually turn with me to a few different places and we'll see. If you go to Job, book of Job, chapter four, verse seven. Here, Job has been going through just tragedy after tragedy, and his very helpful friends try to bring him comfort by blaming him. Here in verse 7 of chapter 4, it's one of his friends speaking, remember, who that was innocent ever perished, or where were the upright cut off? The way the question is formed is, is, this hasn't happened. The upright don't suffer in this way. The righteous aren't cut down like this. This was even the case in secular opinion. Turn over to Acts chapter 28. Acts chapter 28 and verse 4. Here, this is detailing Paul's ordeal on the island of Malta. He's just survived a terrible shipwreck and has been warming himself by a fire. And all of a sudden here in verse 3, When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened onto his hand. In verse four, when the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. Here, even those outside of a biblical background would have thought that the reason why bad things happen is because you're a bad person. You're somehow worse than everybody else. Although this can be very easily changed. In verse 6, when they waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. So it's very easy to change the people's opinions about folks. But this perspective endured even to the disciples. One last passage, John chapter 9. John chapter 9, verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? There is some reason why this person has suffered is because of something bad that they did. It goes all the way back to Job's time. It goes all the way into other cultures, even to Jesus' own disciples thought this. But yet as all these passages would later go on to show that that's not why. It wasn't because they were particularly worse than everybody else. So that's what Jesus answers in verse 3. It says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We find out later it's because the blind man was going to be given his sight back by Jesus and that he had a purpose for that. So Jesus is very clear with these Galileans and with those of the Tower of Siloam. It's not because they were... Worse than everybody else is why they had suffered in this way. But then Jesus doesn't go on to say why. It's so close. It's almost a little frustrating. Where it's like Jesus says, okay, well, it's not this. It's like, okay, great. It's not that. Then what was it? And instead he says, but I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, if Jesus is going to move away from answering a question that all of us would really, really, really like to know, and instead says, I'm going to actually talk about this instead, this doesn't minimize the question. It doesn't minimize how hard our sufferings might be. But it does point to how important what Jesus is going to talk about is. You imagine going into the doctor's office complaining of these consistent headaches And instead of the doctor saying, well, no, your headache's not the real problem. What's really happening here is that your heart is about to give out. You have to be in immediate surgery or you are going to die before you leave the building. Now, if we were to look at the doctor and say, well, yeah, but my headaches, we would say, well, your headache is important, there's a much bigger issue that we've got to deal with right here. There's something that is far more urgent and that's what Jesus is getting to here. So with all respect, due respect to Dr. Tyson, we can't look at these things and say, it's like, okay, well, here's the, here's the reason why God doesn't exist. It's like, no, we've got a much bigger problem than a church collapsing on people. As hard as that is, we're not minimizing these tragedies, not at all. The fact that this is more important than even these tragedies shows us just how critical of an issue this really is. And that is repentance. Repentance. Now, when Jesus says that you will all likewise perish, he's not referring to the fact that if you don't repent, you're going to have towers collapse on you or be killed by government officials. How do we know that? Because he's just said it's not because of a particular sin that these people committed. He could have said, well, these people didn't repent of their sins. so They died in these horrible ways. No, saying they're not particularly worse than everybody else. So when he says we're all going to likewise perish, what he's referring to is the ultimate judgment. The time that he has been referring to in the previous passage that we will all have our due with God. And that if we go to this place unprepared, we will wish we had towers to fall on our heads. As it says in Revelation 6, when the day of judgment comes, is what the people are doing. And they're crying to the mountains that they might be crushed. So if this is repentance, that the way out is repentance, then what is it? how do we repent what does repentance look like in Matthew chapter 12 verse 41 don't turn there cuz i'm going to send you to another spot in just a second in Matthew chapter 12 verse 41 Jesus makes mention of the men of the men of Nineveh who will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it for they repented At the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So, if he says that the people of Nineveh have repented at the preaching of Jonah, then what did they do? So, let's turn with me to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3. And we'll see repentance. Dramatically demonstrated for us in, um, in this passage. Jonah chapter three, starting in verse one. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, rise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Get forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast How they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. We can see there are a lot of factors that are going into their response to the preaching of God. Phil Reichen, a wonderful scholar, and one I have depended on many times through the series of Luke, he pulls out three components of genuine repentance— We can see all three of these here in this passage that we just read. To quote from him, it says, to repent is to, one, confess the sinfulness of our sin against God. To confess our sin against God. That is, is to make a full and open acknowledgement that we have done what is wrong in God's sight or have failed to do what is good in his sight. It's to be honest enough to admit that we are guilty of pride, lust, greed, bitterness, worry, self-pity, and self-righteousness, and all other sins that we've committed. So again, the first is to confess. First component of genuine repentance. The second point that Mr. Riken brings out is to be contrite, to be contrite. It is to be sorry for what we have done. It's to feel the sadness and remorse, not just because we got caught or have to face consequences, but because we are grieved by our sin itself as an offense against God. So again, we confess our sin or contrite over our sin. And then finally, to, to repent then is to change our ways, turning from our sin. It's not enough just to know that sin is sin or to even shed tears of sorrow. If we are truly penitent, then we will leave our sin behind and follow after God. Kent Hughes thus calls repentance a change of mind that brings a change of action. This is repentance, and we can see all aspects of that repentance there. Riken further points out that repentance is an act of our intellect. Our confession is an act of our—or or that contrition is an act of our emotions— And our change is an action of our will. Repentance is a fully immersive experience. But there's still one more critical piece that we have for repentance. Yes, it's confession, contrition, and change. But there is one further aspect that we need. And for that, let's turn to Matthew 27. Matthew 27, verses 3 through 5. And let's see what might be missing from Judas's repentance. Matthew 27, starting in verse 3. Then when Judas, Jesus' betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it to yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. What's missing from Judas's repentance here? We see confession. He says, I've sinned. I've betrayed innocent blood. We can see he's clearly emotional about it. He seems very sorry for what he has done. In fact, it's driven him to suicide in verse 6. And then he seems to be changing his ways by going back and giving the money back. He betrayed as an act of greed to get this 30 pieces of silver and he throws it back. So what's missing? What's missing is that he didn't turn from his sin to God. He didn't turn to Christ. What do I mean by turning to Christ? I mean, he didn't come to God with the same attitude that the Ninevites had of saying, God might be merciful. I have no hope. We have no hope except upon the mercies of God and throwing themselves onto his grace. It's not enough just to turn from our sins or be mournful and feel bad and then turn to self-help or self-reform or other religions. Other religions make this point. That people are, every religion says that there's something wrong with us. And every religion, a false religion, has some sort of human-generated solution to it. Say these words, do these acts, go on this pilgrimage, take this trip. And that's what Judas is doing here. In fact, one preacher very controversially had said that the real sin of Judas was not betraying Jesus, but it was losing his hope that Jesus could forgive him. If he had come, Christ's sacrifice was enough even to cover the sin of Judas. But Judas did not go to Christ. He did not turn to him and throw himself on the mercy of God. That's what we need to have a full repentance. It's not enough just to confess and be sorry and change. But it's to confess, to be contrite, and to change and turn from sin to God knowing that we need his mercy. And if we do that, we go into our second point, that Jesus gives us everything that we need to grow and to produce fruit. Because now Jesus brings us this parable as an answer to what happens if we ignore the first paragraph. If we say that we will not repent, what will perishing look like? That's what we have in our parable, starting in verse 6. We can tend to assume that because judgment hasn't fallen on us yet, towers haven't collapsed, waves haven't gone over our cities, that maybe we're just about getting away with it. We see this all the time, don't we, with corrupt politicians or people that have committed all these acts of terrible evil and they just don't seem to get caught. In fact, they seem to be living a better life than everybody else does. And it seems like they're getting away with it. But what this parable illustrates is it's not the fact that they're getting away with it. It's the fact that God is very, very merciful. And that this moment of respite that they're getting is only due to God's clemency, God's grace and mercy in this moment. So to illustrate this, Jesus tells this parable, says a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Those of you that have done gardening, this might be a familiar experience for you. The vineyard at this time would have been the best soil available to the farmer. This would have been where you would have put your best crop and would have had the most nutrient-dense soil to draw from. And here this man has planted this fig tree with the hope that he would get much fruit out of it. Fig trees are supposed to produce fruit annually every year of a great harvest in late summer. But here this tree has not. It should be thriving. It's been given the best possible circumstances, but it's just not producing any fruit. There have been some that have tried to argue as to whether or not this is an old tree that was once fruitful and no longer is, or a new tree that he's planted that should have been fruitful that's not. And there are various interesting implications to each one. But the main point is that whether this is a new tree or an old tree, it's not producing fruit. And that's the main point. That's its main sticking point. And here he's been going about it for the last three years. It's not been due to lack of patience with the farmer but it's been due to this tree not producing. And the logic that's pursuing from here is rather frightening because he presents a very, very good argument for cutting this tree down. Fig trees withdraw a lot of nutrients from the soil. And to just have it sitting there drawing a bunch of nutrients from it is being doubly useless. It's not only not producing fruit, but it's taking away resources from other plants that might so here he comes and offers saying, it's not doing what it should be doing, and it's robbing what it from from others, so let's just take it down. There is no argument to be had here. It makes complete sense to do this. In fact, the question that we have scratching on our minds is, why hasn't he done this already? But the first sign that there was no fruit. But here the gardener interposes for this tree and says, sir, let it alone for this year also. Till I can dig around it and put on some fertilizer for it. The idea of loosening up the soil so it has more air, putting on this fertilizer so it has even more nutrients. Some commentators looked at this as almost saying that this is complete overkill for this tree. That it should have had more than enough in the vineyard it was already sitting in. But here, this is going above and beyond any sort of expectation that any fig tree would need. And then the way that this even the gardener's own prognosis for this tree in verse nine. It says, then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. The way that the original language is set up here is it's given the expectation that this fig tree still won't produce. That it's much more likely that we'll be doing the latter half of the sentence. But if not, then you can cut it down. It's very disturbing in its pure logic of everything that's happening. And it's not hard to figure out what he is referring to here. That this fig tree can be applied to individual persons, can apply to whole nations. In fact, it was probably the nation of Israel that had the the most immediate application in Jesus' mind. As we'll see later on, he goes up to other fig trees and finds them equally unfruitful. This is fig trees has been used as illustrations for nations before. And here the only reason why this tree is still going and still has its root in the ground is because of the mercies of God. That's the case for us all. The axe is going to come eventually. So the question is is what will we be doing when it comes? So what's our takeaway from this passage? What do I want us to remember from this? This should make us ask, have we repented? Have we confessed our sins, felt contrition for those sins, changed so that we don't do them anymore? And most critically, have we thrown ourselves on Jesus' mercy, trusting him to forgive? This is the question that we have to have answered correctly all the other things that we might wonder about the Bible or we might wonder about philosophy, all pale in comparison to have we repented? Do we see this as an ongoing process? Here when Jesus repeats himself in verses three and five, he uses two different tenses for repentance. One of them is a once-for-all, over-and-done sort of repentance, a one-time decision, and then the other is an ongoing present tense pattern of life repentance is not a one-time choice but it's an ongoing life long pursuit constantly coming back to christ it's not getting saved over and over again it's not losing one's salvation but it's being reminded of why it is that that salvation is necessary and being on that journey more and more to producing fruit One commentator had closed that Jesus has made the way of escape very clear. Do you think that the Galileans would have gone to the temple if they had known that soldiers were coming to kill them? Or would the people have gone up the Tower of Siloam of that day if they had known it was going to fall? Unlike them, we know that a day of disaster is coming. How merciful Jesus is to tell us this. How gracious God is to provide a way of escape. So if that's where you are this morning or watching on our stream, pray that you would get right with God, that you would repent and put your full trust in Christ. But for the rest of us who have put our faith in Christ, who have confessed, felt sorry, and have changed by the power of the Holy Spirit to turn more and more to Christ, we're still left with those questions. We say, well, I have taken care of my biggest problem. I have repented and put my faith in Christ. So can I know why the Tower of Siloam fell now? Can I know why those worshipers were slaughtered? I think the reason why Jesus doesn't provide for us the why that these people went through what they went through is because he wouldn't be able to go through all of the reasons why. When God is doing something in your life, he often is not doing just one thing. Or is not just doing just something for you. As I've said many times before and will say many times again from John Piper. At any one point God is doing 10,000 things in your life. And you're aware of maybe three of them. I think if he was to go through why each of those 18 people fell in that tower of Siloam. He would still be talking about all the effects that it's had. Look at us today. We're still talking about it. We're still drawing comfort from the words that Jesus has spoken and has motivated people to repent thousands of years after they have fallen. Jesus couldn't have possibly enumerated how many lives that this passage would have changed because of the events that have occurred here. He's doing something in these things. We also rest in the fact that God is good and that he will do something ultimately with all of this. We don't understand why. I don't understand how somehow having evil in the world is going to translate into greater good and glory for God. But I wouldn't have seen the death of his own son to be a good thing either. I wouldn't have looked at Jesus being on the cross for my sin as something that was inherently good. Someone who is murdered for my transgressions. But he's done something with that, hasn't he? He's brought good out of the ultimate evil. In the world. He will do so again. I can't imagine how. That's because I have a really tiny human mind. That's really stuck in one small part of time and space. And God observes it all. And sees how everything that he is doing is ultimately orchestrated to build this beautiful tapestry for his glory. So because that's who he is. Because he's answered this question, because he's been my savior and loves me so, I trust him with these other questions that I don't have the answers to. I wish I had an answer for why bad things happen. But I have who the answer is. It's Christ. I trust him. I love him even when and especially when it hurts. So for those of us, many who have been struggling with really hard stuff these last couple of months, we would really like to know the answers to why we're going through what we've gone through. I would tell you to hang close to Christ. He's our only hope. And somehow he has promised us that he will work out all things for our good. He's got a really good track record of hanging on to his promises and fulfilling those. So let's hold fast to him. Let's turn other people to him for this remarkable gift that he is willing to give us. This is not some blind following of a cult leader. A cult leader asks for your unquestioning obedience and gives you nothing in return. Christ offers us obedience as a gift, and he has done more for us than we could ever do for him. So hold fast to him through our tears, through our hardship, because he is good and he has provided us rest and glory. He is proven worthy, as all heaven has said worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for this passage that you've given to us. That you have given to us a warning of what's coming, a warning that we don't deserve and have given us the opportunity and the power to come to you in repentance and trust. Lord, it's really, really hard to trust when hard things are happening. It's easy when the veil of darkness is over our eyes and we can't see past the massive troubles that are in our lives. But Lord, you're bigger than those things. You've given us a solution to a much greater problem. So help us to trust in you with those problems that we don't have an immediate answer to. Help us to remember who we are and who you are and what you have done for us. Lord, one day we will all see you. One day our faith will be replaced with sight. Oh, hasten that day. Help us to see you in truth that we might believe and find comfort. As in Jesus' name, I ask these things. Amen.